Well, well, it's the most wonderful time of the year, is it not? You never quite know what a day holds this time of season. Well, good morning. It's good to see you, and uh, I am glad that you are here to worship Christ of Christmas. With so much of the commercialization, if you will, that goes on in our society today, it's easy to drift away from the true reason that we celebrate this holiday. You know, I thought this week as I went to uh, one of my um, children's um, school programs, they were singing uh, all the different carols, every different class, right? But all the carols were pretty much secular carols, you know? And, uh, in fact, even when I took my uh, some of our youth from our life group to um, their youth group, which is on Tuesday night, we sort of do the caravan thing, and we hauled them here. Uh, they ran out of things to talk about. All six of them did in the van pretty quick, and I thought to myself, well, why don't you sing Christmas carols? Because our life group did Christmas caroling on Tuesday night. We just sort of went down in the neighborhood and had a fun time doing that as a as a uh, extended family. And uh, so they said, sure. And so they started singing Jingle Bells, and then they started singing Santa Claus coming to town and Rudolph or whatever it was. And I thought, hey, 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 Christmas carols, you know, like that talk about Christ's birth. And so then they had a few of those that they got down. And I recall that, you know, it's true, unless this church stewards well the message of Jesus, of Christmas, then it ends up getting lost, I think, in our culture. And I thought when I was at the school program, my goodness, we pass it down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation, the whole story of Santa Claus and his reindeer and gifts. But do we pass down well the story of Christ's birth and him coming into this world? And so we are here today to steward that message and to steward the message maybe a little bit deeper and more significantly than you've thought about it already yet this season. So I encourage you to lean in as we talk about our second part here in this series, Who Needs Christmas? And we said last week that the whole subject matter of who needs Christmas, it didn't start um, 2,000 years ago as we think of it as the babe that was born in the manger with a young couple who was trying to figure out where they could have a baby. But it started 2,000 years before that with an old couple wondering if they could ever find a way to get pregnant. It wasn't the young couple that was the start of the Christmas story, trying to figure out how in the world they got pregnant, but the old couple, will we ever get pregnant? And that old couple was Abraham and his wife, Sarah, 75 years old, trying to figure out what God was trying to do with them. You see, God had come to them 2,000 years before Christ and given them a promise. And he'd given them a promise that was, well, it was an unbelievable promise, but it was really quite remarkable because that's the way that Christmas is. It says this in Genesis 12, too. We looked at it last week. This is the promise that God gave to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And then it goes on and says, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, it might be that you're 
you know, in the season of Christmas and, and there's some uh, good cheer going on. Maybe you're making the cookies. Maybe you've got the gifts uh, already bought. And but if it if it really came down to you trying to understand or trying to embrace the full story of Christ in Christmas, you might be a little hesitant because it's rather unbelievable when you look at some of the the things that are referenced about that story, about the manger, about the angels, about God coming. It's an unbelievable story, but here's here's the issue. It's so remarkable that it's unbelievably remarkably true because you took take the big view of history and God has been working through the ages to bring about his purpose and will. And so God came because he knew the world needed Christmas. Why did he bless Abraham? He just chose to bless Abraham. He was going to take somebody's life and bless it to bless all peoples in all worlds, in all nations, over all time. It was God's purpose that Christmas was needed. Christmas was needed for the world because, well, God decided that the world needed to be blessed. But as I closed last week, I said there's uh, another part to it. Not only did the world need Christmas, but God needed Christmas. And you might have thought to yourself, that's a little strange. God needed Christmas? How's that? Well, let's think of it this way. If you're a parent, maybe you've uh, had this reflection internally. I'm sure you have, actually. I, I know pretty much it's true of all parents. And even if you're not a parent, then your parents probably thought of this. Or if you didn't have good parents thinking of this, maybe it was a parent. But as parents, you think to yourself with your child, how can I show them how much I love them? How do I show that I really care for them? How do I show them that I don't lay in bed at night trying to figure out ways to make their life miserable? How do I try to tell my kids in the context of the information I'm giving them, instructions I'm giving them, that I am giving them these instructions for their own good? How do I do this? How do I let them know that I love them? You've been there? And, and the kids, I mean, you know, sometimes they're staring off in space, but then maybe they look at you and they'll say, like, Dad, you sort of look funny when you're trying to be serious. I mean, they just don't get it. But you and I, we, we are able to go eyeball to eyeball with our kids and let them know we love you. But God wants to tell us that he loves us. How does, how does he do that? How does he how does he do that when he's a, like a, a spirit, right? A spirit is sort of it's intangible. You can't hug a spirit. You can't go eyeball to eyeball with a spirit. The spirit of God who created, he wanted to say, I love you. Look at me. I need to tell you that I'm, I, all this is for your own good. Trust me in this, because if they will actually learn that we love them, our children, then we say to them, then then trust me in this. So the love and the trust are connected. And God wants to do the same thing, but he's spirit. And and so what's God's answer to that? How does he communicate to us? 
to love him and trust him. Well, God needed Christmas. That was his answer. He needed Christmas to show us that. Now, I don't know about you, but if I try to climb into this whole epic story of how God did this through the eons of time, I find myself sort of caught up in the wonder of it all. You know what I'm saying? It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? And and it is. It's a beautiful time. And I actually had ice on my windshield this morning where my car was parked. I couldn't believe it. As a Midwest boy, I'm like, it's cold. It's chilly. Maybe it melted real quick. But it's the most wonderful time of the year because God needed Christmas to show us something. And we were singing this morning, and as we were singing Hark the Herald Angels, I thought how beautiful that we stand on this side, or at least at this juncture of the epic story that God's unfolding, because we know. We know, and we can sing, and we can rejoice, but what if, what if Christmas wasn't there? What if that whole event didn't happen 2,000 years ago? And then before that, God starting the story. What if this world was vacant of Christmas? Then this wouldn't be the most wonderful time of the year because there wouldn't be the holiday. But greater than that, it wouldn't be the most wonderful world to be in because we wouldn't know. Now, would we? God needed Christmas. And so the Apostle Paul, we're going to look at a verse that we looked at briefly last week. The Apostle Paul, he was a really smart guy. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was a smart guy. If you want to know how smart the Apostle Paul is, read the book of Romans. I mean, you go through there and you go, wow, I mean, that's, that's deep and that's, that's involved. And he's going places with it. But the Apostle Paul. He had studied the Jewish scriptures for a long time. And, and Paul, be, before he came to know Jesus, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a Jew of the Jew. And if uh, you don't like Christians, you would sort of like Paul because he didn't like Christians. In fact, he, uh, he tracked Christians down. He tried to find them. He tried to throw them in jail. He didn't like Christians. And sometimes, I mean, he had the power to arrest Christians. That's pretty good power. Maybe some of you would like to have that power when you have some ugly Christians around you. I don't know. But <laughs> Paul was in this state of this intense religious thinking, but he was blinded to the bigger, epic, remarkable story, the unbelievable story of God, what God was doing. And so when Paul came to know Jesus Christ, he did this 180 and he turned around and he looked back over all the scriptures and he goes, wow, there's a story there that I didn't see. You ever been into a movie like that? And you're getting towards the latter part of the movie and all of a sudden, whoa, I didn't see that other storyline going on. Well, this is what happened to Paul. And so Paul looks back through Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures. It was sort of like a cocoon where God was creating something beautiful through those thousands of years that was going to be birthed and born. And he steps back and he goes, wow, this is incredible what God was doing. I now see it all. I see it clearly. Like I never had seen it clearly before. Something unexpected was coming about. And so he wrote to some Christians in a Roman, uh, Roman providence, Galatia. Galatians 4, 4. It says this, but when the set time had fully come, 
when the set time had fully come, and we gave reference to it last week, but I, I just want to unpack it just a little bit again, because there was some incredible movement that was happening in the world events and the political systems of that day. In particular, there was this Pax Romana. Pax Romana means the Roman peace. And if you were to take a map and understand what was happening at the time, the Roman Empire between 20 BC, 27 BC and 180 AD, like 200 year period of time. Think how old our country is. But 200 year period of time, the Romans had spread out all around the Mediterranean area. As far north as England, south as Morocco today to the, um, uh, to the east, as far as Iraq, they controlled all that area. And God was doing something, even in allowing that to happen, as violent as it was when they took over all these places. Because Rome was a city-state, it was a republic, and it expanded its kingdom, its empire, all the way around. And what did they do? They built roads, they had seaports. In fact, if you study about how they built roads, they're like, wow, they discovered concrete and some things started to change. It was pretty cool. Commerce began to traffic all over that known world. And so God... When the set time had fully come, he knew that he knew that something needed to be done in the moment of time of history to demonstrate, to show his love so it wouldn't fall between the cracks and be forgotten. Something that could be demonstrated, documented and declared. And so the time had fully come in the Roman Empire where things could travel and things could happen, even that he was able to write this passage to the Christians of Galatia was proof that there had been some peace that had come about, even though it had come about through a lot of force. All right? But not only was it true of the empire, it was also true of the temple system. The temple was built so people could worship God. But somewhere along the line, the temple became a corrupt system. Instead of uh, caring about compassion for people, they got all involved with what was cleanliness. And they got consumed with money rather than morality. And though there was this reverence and respect for God, there really wasn't an interest in the people of God and that the people of God really weren't that important. It was more of the system and what was happening at the time. And so you have this empire, peace, technically, Freedom to roam and travel, word to spread, common culture, common language. When the time, the set time, had fully come. In the temple, people were like a little disgusted with it. Is this it? Is this God? I don't know that I'm really for this, if that's the case. But when the set time had fully come, Paul said, God sent his son. God sent his son. Now here's a question for you. Maybe you've thought of this. I've thought of it. Thought of it when I was younger. Why did God have to send somebody? Why did God have to send somebody? Wouldn't a messenger been enough? Hey, messengers have been there before. Send another prophet, whatever it is. Send the message. I don't care how it is. You know, it's a written document or something. Just pass on along another. Why did God have to send his son? Why did God have to send a body? And then it says this. He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. God made a decision. 
God made a decision that he would put himself in a body and he would send that body to earth. And not only would it be God in a body, it would be God in a baby body. What do you think about that? God in a baby body. Why is it? And he came under the law. Don't you think if God was going to send a body, he ought to show up on the scene and say, hello, <laughs> I'm here. Now everything's different. I'm going to change it. Instead, he came underneath to law, not to usurp and overthrow the law. Why did God do that? Some of you, you just need to ask more questions when you read scripture. Just throw questions out. Be inquisitive. And some of you are skeptics today. Maybe you're on the outside of the faith even looking in and you're not even sure about the God thing. Well, God can take on your questions. And this is what I do with scripture. What many people do. Just throw questions at it. Why did he have to come in a baby body? It says two right after that. In order to. There was a reason. He had to come in a baby body. You see, laws and regulations couldn't do it. Judges and prophets couldn't do it. Exile and punishment couldn't do it. Even the sacred scriptures couldn't do it. God had to do something. And what he had to do was to do something personal. And to do something personal, it had to be relational. So God, when the set time had fully come, he sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God had to do something personal and relational. Therefore, God needed Christmas. And so God put in a baby body to live among us, to love on us, and then end up going and dying on a cross and all as a part of that was for us to show him, just like we do with parents. I can't get it through their head. They need to know how much I love them. And I care for them. And I think about them. And I think about their goodwill. You see, some of you were taught that God is a mean God. I don't know where you got that from. Well, I do. It's from bad teaching. It's from bad environments, religious environments. God, and we worship about it. And, and, and Joe, man, you were into that last song. I was so glad you'd been in that last song because that's true. God loves us. And God Loved us so much that he wanted to show us something personal and relational. And it wasn't just for the nations and the tribes and the world. He wanted to show it to you and to me. And so God did something. He sent his son 
to redeem us, to bring us into an adoption of sonship, a personal relationship. So if your God thing right now is sort of like, hey, I go to church every now and then, maybe around Christmas, that's pretty good, and in the Easter thing, I hit it. Or maybe you're thinking, well, God, you know, I, I heard a little bit about him, and I know other people follow him. But if your God story isn't about a personal relationship with God, then you've got a whole world to discover. You've got a whole epic story to start seeing how you are painted and fitted in to God's master plan. So God needed Christmas. So what did he do? God staged this demonstration. God staged the demonstration. Why? Because actions speak louder than words. Words, 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 words. I hear you, I hear you, I hear you all the time, right? But actions speak louder than words. And so God took on this initiative. He took it on because he knew that he needed to come in a moment in time when the set time was fully right. He needed to come to planet Earth so something could be observed. Something that started not just 2,000 years ago, but 4,000 years ago when he called Abraham and he gave them that promise that he then began to feel through times. And then 2,000 years later, God came and he put Jesus in a body here to live and mock among us. And then 2,000 years later, guess what? Here we are in this room remembering all this and being able to share the hope about all of this. God staged a demonstration. But think about it. That whole Roman Empire thing, history, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus came. What's happened in 2,000 years? You don't even know some of the events that happened in 2,000. You don't even know the names. You don't know the events, the places. It's, it's our moment in time here is just so brief compared to history, right? But here we are 2,000 years later remembering the birth of a Jewish baby in the armpit of the Roman Empire. And it's not only us in this room, literally millions of people around the world are remembering that event. Because God knew he needed to demonstrate his love, that actions speak louder than words. So in a set moment of time, when everything was right, he sent his son. He sent his son. There were Christians in Rome, as evidenced by the Pax Romana and the spreading of the word. Paul decided to write the Christians in Rome a letter Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates, but God demonstrates what, what they're saying. They're under the reign of, of Nero at the time as he's writing him the, them this letter. And he's wanting to remind them of the big story, all that's going on, because, you know, things are maybe always the best. And he says, remember this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this in this is what the prophets 
sort of hinted at what um, was foretold or foreshadowed for years and centuries that God was going to demonstrate something. And as he demonstrated this, it would be documented and then it would be declared throughout history. And so we have even a passage of scripture like this from a letter Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome that says, remember this, lean into me. Here's the Christmas story. Come on, come on with me here. God, God demonstrated his love for us in this. And what was it he demonstrated? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you probably heard that passage before, some of you. It's a great passage to have memorized. But think about Paul who penned this. Paul who penned this, he put it in the present tense. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, because Paul, he was, I mean, he knew what he had done. He had persecuted Christians. He had sent some of them uh, in, in, in obscure places. He had, uh, he had not treated people well. He, and, and, and he's comprehending this, that while I was still doing this, while I was still on the warpath, while I was still a wrecking ball kind of machine with the new Christian followers, why did that all happen? I was the sinner, man. I was sitting. And while it happened, God did this for me. See, we look back 2,000 years. I got it, got it. Yeah, we're sinners. Jesus died for us. He demonstrated his love. That's great. But put it in the present tense. And some of us need it in the present tense the morning because you've been out there sinning this week. Knowingly sinning. Some of you come in here and that's your primary identity. You don't have a healthy identity of who you are in God. Your identity is I'm a loser. I'm a sinner. I'm a decadent person. Maybe I just, I don't know. I'm not anybody someone else would maybe like. And you're down on yourself. You're beating yourself up. And whether knowingly or unknowingly, you're right. We have all sinned, Scripture said, and it says what? We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul, he's writing this, present tense. While we were still sinners, God demonstrated. Put himself in a baby body. Lived among us. Showed us how to live. And then he was willing to go and die on a cross. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now hang with me here. This is pretty good, I believe. I don't see too many people doing their shopping on your apps or whatever. You're good. Just incredible. This is a wonderful time of the year, wonderful story. Ask yourself this question. Yeah, why did he have to send somebody? But then why did he have to die? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, why couldn't he just stand up sort of on the hillside after he lived a few years? He's getting ready to leave, ascend into the heavens and go, hey, everybody, come in. I just got a word for you. I just want to let everybody know <clears throat> you're forgiven. You're forgiven. I've spoken to my dad, and he says it's good. And so I'm just going to extend his word on to you. You're all forgiven. You're good to go. And I'm out of here myself. So we'll see you. You're forgiven. For all time, why couldn't he just sort of done that? 
Why did he have to die? Why, why did he have to be beaten and scourged and, and have a crown of thorns on his head and then pour out his life by bleeding to death on a cross? I mean, why did that have to happen? Why did that have to happen? Why couldn't Jesus just pronounce everybody is forgiven? Well, I don't know, a couple reasons. One is they wouldn't have believed him. What do you mean everybody's forgiven? Everybody's forgiven. If, if I had somebody else try to forgive somebody who'd wronged me, I'd go, wait a second, that's not your place, right? If I had uh, Zach over here was hurt and offended by something Minor did, and I step in between Minor and Zach, and I say, hey, Zach, I got this. I got this. I know that he did you wrong. Minor, you're forgiven for what you did to Zach. You're like, what? You can't do that. He didn't hurt you. He hurt me, right? So they would thought he was crazy. In fact, they did think he was crazy. You know, sometimes Jesus had these miracles. He did this miracle, and then he'd step back and say, your sins are forgiven. And what did they flip out about? They didn't flip out about the miracle. They flipped out that who are you to say that you can forgive people? No mere mortal can forgive another mortal. Oh, well, there maybe is a clue. But see, just to say everybody's forgiven, they wouldn't have believed it. They would have just thought he was crazy. Why? Why did he have to die while we were still sinners? This is it. You ready? Because God is the author of life. And God is the author of your life. He is the source of life. And he gave you life. And because he gave you life, you owe your life to him. But what happens? We don't give our life to him. We just continue to go on sinning. Indifference. Maybe sometimes, you know, uh, subtly, sometimes defiant with a fist. Day in and day out, we say no to the author of life that our life, hey, forget, I, forget you. The author of life ended up pouring out his life for you because you owe him your life. He died. He died in our place. So the reason he came as a baby in a baby body and lived among us and, and, and died on a cruel cross and was raised from the grave was because, was because of this. When you dishonor the source of life, you dishonor God. And to dishonor the source of life is an expression of ingratitude deserving the forfeiture of life we owe god our life we should get up every morning i don't care how sick you are 
or how difficult your life circumstances are, you should get up every morning and say, thank you, God, for life. You've given me life, right? But we don't. We get up, we have a whole list of complaints and worries and concerns. We don't live in the joy, the present moment of the life that God has given us. We take our lives and and we sort of throw them away and toss them in indifference to God. We don't give our life to God. We live in a culture and a society that somebody just disregards life. Why does God hate abortion? Why is suicide wrong? Why is assisted suicide wrong? Why is it that we should treat every human being, regardless of social class, wealth or not, with human dignity? Is because the author of life has given life in every situation, in every life that has been given life, gives their life to God. That was God's intent. Because that is what is right. It's not only right in the eyes of God and worshiping Him, it's right in the reality of our human experience. If you are living your life for yourself, or maybe for someone else you've been trying to, to you know, please, maybe it's a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a, a boss, it, it, know this, it doesn't get lined up right that way. You have to decide that I am going to love back to God and give him my life. And the greatest honor you can give is to give him back your life if you've never given him your life before. We have a debt to give to the author of life, and we cannot repay it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I have another little passage here I just want to throw at you. This was a good one, too. Ready? So Jesus, he dies. He rises from the grave. He ascends to the heaven. And so he sort of sends his disciples out to to expand the kingdom. Tell everybody this. I mean, you're just a couple, three chapters into the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And so you got Peter and Andrew and James and John. And, I mean, they're boots on the ground. They're boots on the ground in Jerusalem, the very city that killed Jesus, the very people. And so they're out there on the streets, and they're eyeball to eyeball with these people. Now, what would you do? He's like, you scum, you cruel, loser kind of people, right? Well, they're mindful of what they've now been commissioned to do. And they've now been commissioned to let the whole world know that God loves them and for them to reinterpret their Jewish scriptures in the light that Paul had to say, listen, this this is something that's critically important. Paul hadn't yet come to know Christ at this moment, but they're out there. The early disciples are boots on the ground on the streets of Jerusalem. And it says this in Acts 3.14. They said, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer would be released. So they're with these people that put Jesus on the cross and they're confronting them. You disowned the holy and righteous one. 
You ask a murderer. Remember, Pilate, Pilate said, hey, you know, I, I, I give you up. You know, you want to let Jesus go free here? How about that? But they picked a murderer. They picked Barabbas. No, Barabbas we want. And so they put Jesus to death in their minds. And then he says this. This is cool. You killed who? The author of life. Acts 3.15 declares that God, in his son, Jesus, was the author of life. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. John says that in John chapter 1, referring to Jesus Christ, Jesus, this God in a baby body, is the one who created you. That's the thing that goes in my mind. The one who made me as a baby became a baby? Get out. He was the author of life. And as the author of life, he comes to you. He comes to you and he demands your life. Not because he's mean, but because he knows. It's like a parent. I just just know how much I love you and my plan for you is a perfect and good plan. But you killed the author of life. Actually, you can't really kill the author of life. He had to choose to let his life be given away. But then what happens if you're the author of life? You raise yourself. And God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to this. This is documented. All right? And this is now declared to the world. God needed Christmas because he needed to stage a demonstration of his love for you and I and your friends and your mothers and your fathers, your family members. You're going to see this next week around the Christmas table that maybe don't know him. God demonstrated it. So when we worship him at Christmas, when we get involved in this Yuletide season and what a wonderful time of life it is, right? Let's remember why it's so wonderful is because the author of life who demands our life gave his life for us so we can give our life back to him and that one day we will live with him eyeball to eyeball in his presence forever and every tear will be wiped from our eye that is an incredible epic and it's not a movie it's reality god needed christmas And so, that showstopper of a statement, may it hang with you because you need to understand that Jesus, his death, demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude. You killed the author of life. You raise your fist. You live in an indifference to him during your week. But it also showed the magnitude of his love for us. You see, that Romans passage, go back a verse earlier. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, Paul said. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the set time had fully come. And God in his sovereignty made a move. There was the Jewish, simple Jewish carpenter. Discovered that his fiancée was pregnant. They had never had sexual relations. What was he going to do? What what was he going to do now? Was he going to shame her? Was he going to protect her? Was he going to lie for her? Was he going to tell his mom? The Jewish carpenter was in a troubled place. And so God, in this epic story, sent an angel. And the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. It's referring to the prophet Isaiah, the Matthew passages. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him. You ready for this? Isn't this what we're all waiting for? Isn't this what all the hope of the world hangs on? And the hope for your personal life today, no matter how you've fallen or how you've been broken. They will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. We needed to see it, to believe it. It wasn't enough just to say it. You see, you show your love by actions. You show your love by actions. And you show great love by a great action. You show it by a great sacrifice it has to be shown to be known it has to be shown to be known it has to be shown to be known and so God staged a demonstration he needed Christmas we needed to see it to believe it it wasn't enough to just say it He had to be with us so that we could know he was for us. We need a demonstration of his love. And so God needed Christmas. 
next week for Christmas Eve. We're going to show that someone else needed Christmas. But before we close here today, I would be amiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to act on that which is demonstrated towards you by the God of the heavens. Um, I know, Joe, we got a song in a little bit, right? But I'm always sometimes at a quandary in a season such as this because the last thing I ever want to do is to force somebody into making a change in their life, even by the weight of Scripture and the weight of truth. But I would be amiss if you weren't given the opportunity to act on what God demonstrated. And so I would like you to consider, if you never, ever have before, making a decision today to trust God. You see, that's what you do when you see that someone loves you. You then choose to trust them. And trust isn't something magical or supernatural. Kind of, it, It's just a simple thing. And, and I've shared it before sometimes. It's like a stool here like that I'm sitting on. I look at it and I trust it to hold me. And so I place my weight. I trust the stool. But what you need to do if you are a human being who was created by the author of life to have life and to use your life to bring glory to him, you have to make a decision because you are a sinner and you have to turn from that sin. And you now need to place your belief in Christ. You need to trust him. That's why this beautiful verse that's so well known is written. The beautiful verse of John 3.16. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. The believe in him is a trust. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity. I'm going to have us just sort of have everybody in this room just close your eyes and bow your heads. And in a moment such as this, it's a very personal moment. So no eyeballs looking around except for the Lord. Sometimes maybe you've heard this type of message of salvation before in years past. Maybe you made some kind of response to it, but it was just maybe a little bit because of peer pressure. It was the thing to do being in your family. And so you said you believed, but you really didn't believe. Not with the trust component. Not knowing that God was the loving heavenly father who demonstrated his love for you in such a deep, compassionate way like what we worship at Christmas. And so sometimes it just sort of catches it, it. It it grips you in the moment. And maybe this is your moment now that you've never made a decision before of deep significance to give your life to the author of life who laid down his life for you. But you'd like to do that now. And so uh, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and, and you can 
You can say this prayer quietly to yourself. You can say it out loud. You can change the words. It's, it's not significant necessarily about what, how the words are stated in the prayer, but that your heart means this. It's a volitional turning of your will, repenting of your sin which is past, and turning towards God and trusting him through his son Jesus Christ to be your life, to be your savior. And so maybe this would be your moment here in this Christmas season of 2017. And if so, then with heads bowed and eyes closed, just repeat this simple prayer. Dear God, I thank you that in this Christmas season, I get it. That you staged a demonstration of your love by sending your son born of a woman so that I could be adopted as your child. And so God, I receive Jesus into my life as my life. And I repent of my sin, my double-mindedness, my indifference. And I turn towards the one who died for my sin while I was still a sinner. So come into my life, Lord Jesus. I trust you now. And from this day forward, I will seek to live for you, the author of life, because you gave your life for me heads bowed and eyes closed if that was your simple prayer this morning not to me but to the father in heaven just raise your hand and say that was my prayer today i receive and believe in jesus christ as my savior yes yes any others across the room amen any others Amen and amen. I would encourage you, if you crossed the line of faith and you prayed that, whether you raised your hand or not, Jesus honors you for your sacrifice of surrendering your life to him. You know, Pierce came up and gave announcements today and if I can just lean into this okay Pierce I saw Pierce walk into this church as a friend of Joe's a year ago and I've seen Jesus transform and change your life it's not just about a simple decision it's about obedience in fact we were talking in my office before service started about some of the obedience Jesus is calling him to. I want to encourage you, wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, maybe you've been a long-time believer, but there's places that you're not growing spiritually, places of non-obedience. Maybe you're a new believer and you're just trying to get traction in all this. Maybe you've never crossed that line of faith, and even that prayer we just prayed is a little scary. 
I want to encourage you to do what Pierce did with 16 others, and you saw some of their quiet testimonies last week. And that is to step into a 10-week journey called Rooted. On the back of your Connect card, just write the word Rooted. Because some of you know that this...